Hello, people of Earth. Welcome to the Vintage Annals Archive podcast. I'm Dr. Thunder. Each week, my co-host Rich and I talk to people making the culture we're obsessed with and bond with them over their own obsessions, whether it's weird pop culture, vintage ephemera, taking the perfect photo, or telling the perfect story. This week, our guest is prolific actor and talented storyteller Stephen Tobolowski. You'll recognize Stephen from his roles in more than 200 movies like Groundhog Day, Mississippi Burning, Spaceballs, and Thelma and Louise. TV shows like Deadwood, Archer, Californication, Silicon Valley, Dick Town, and Minx. He's written three books, hosts a monthly podcast, The Tobolowski Files, co-wrote the film True Stories with David Byrne, and is the subject of two documentaries, Primary Instinct and Stephen Tobolowski's Birthday Party where he tells amazing stories just like the ones in this episode. Instead of a content warning, here's a rapid-fire preview of some of the more adult themes we touched on in our chat with Steven. You can listen for them later like a scavenger hunt. I'm naked in the shower with two women who are fully dressed, and they're like working at me like with turpentine. And they slice her open like a watermelon, and they start pulling out her organs. Uh, Adultery? Yes! He says, I am the number one penis guy in Hollywood. And he opens up this briefcase and he has all these artificial peni. Oh, run, run, Orlando, carve on every tree the fair, the chaste. And I did it as a striptease. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss the great guests we've got coming up. Rating, reviewing, or sharing it with your friends will really help us out, too. If you'd like to leave us a voice message to use on a future episode, go to anchor.fm slash VAAPod and click message. That's anchor.fm slash VAAPod. The next voice you'll hear is my co-host Rich Wexler, photographer and creator of Vintage Annals Archive. You'll hear him call me Alex, and I have no idea why. Here we go. Enjoy. Hey, Stephen. Recording is in progress. I get it. I get it. They've been <laughs> warned. I'm, I'm doing good. Thank you. Can't tell you how much of a, uh, this is a really an honor for me. I gotta be honest. So let me, I just want to just kind of um, do a little, like, I want to just tell you how awesome you are for a minute, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. I will give you the structure out. Um, Alex is my partner. They should be in soon. How does it sound to you? Does it sound okay? You sound great. How do I sound? sound good. You sound very well. Sound oh, very good. Good, good. So I don't know how I found it, but I watched Birthday Party, which just blew me away. The story of, especially of you shopping and someone coming with a gun, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, the story, that really hit me. Um, and then I got really hooked in your podcast. Listening to Department Instinct, you talk about being a storyteller in college. But if I look at the time frame of Birthday Party was 2005, podcast 2009, Prime Instinct 2015. So there's just like seem like a formal move into the world of te- storytelling, but also like in a, in a much more important way, in a much more personal way. I always told stories, just not so um, formally yeah. in formal settings. So the main thing that happened was, I guess I broke my neck. I, I heard about that. I'm very yeah, sorry. So I broke my neck in 2008. Okay. And so at that point in time, I had I couldn't work. I had a lot of time on my hands. And that's when the doctor told me I had a fatal injury and which I obviously didn't. Yes. And so I thought, well, if I did have a fatal injury, what would I want my two boys to know about my life? So that's when David Chen, of all people out of the blue, calls me up at home. He had just seen Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. Okay. 
and wanted to know if I wanted to do some stories as a podcast online. Is that how you met David pretty much? At, over the phone. Wow. And, nice. and so uh, David was a student at Harvard about then. And so I started writing some stories and then David and I would record them live. And later as we got more sophisticated, I would write and just record them on my own. Okay. And then I get together with David and we would do the ins and outs. He would do the editing and I'd send him the music and he'd add the music and, and then he would put it out on online. So I started thinking the podcast began as an impetus of what would I want my boys to know about their father? Uh, how would your boys right now? They are 33 okay. and 29, I think okay. going on 30 and when I started the podcast, you know, they were much, much younger. Okay. So that's why it's not a showbiz exclusively podcast. Right. It's a podcast that is about school and falling in love and having broken hearts and bad teachers and then showbiz story here and there because this is what your dad did. And so it's just kind of like footnotes for them had I had died on that mountain. Wow. I can imagine if it didn't work out, you would just go to their house and just make them listen to stories for 10 hours at a time. I'm here. Christmas is going to be me and the stories. So the, the podcast was going out there. And then that's when uh, Simon and Schuster said, well, can you do a book? Based on hearing the. Yeah. And doing the, the pot. And I was doing stories. I think I did my first stories live at Harvard. Okay. Wow. Because uh, David was a student there. So he got okay. me into class. So. That was my first show was at Harvard University. Then David was still in, in Boston. I think I performed at uh, Coolidge Corners. Is that the name of the theater in Boston? I, I performed stories there. Okay. And it's funny, at the time, a professor there at Harvard was Danny Rubin, who happened to be the screenwriter for Groundhog Day. Oh, wow. Okay. So life goes like that, da 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 yeah. So it was great to see Danny again. And, you know, life, especially if you're in show business, there are all sorts of intersections you never expected on having. So that's kind of the history of the podcast. And so the later things like Primary Instinct and things like that, these were shows I did in Seattle okay. when David had moved to Seattle. And then he was he had his various uh, jobs and podcasts and we we did live shows in Seattle, which was a hoot, which was amazing. Do you get more out of performing these stories with an audience or do you get more out of doing it at, at home? Is there a difference in those two processes for you? The most important part of the process is writing the story. Okay. To me, you know, writing the story is the most important thing. Okay. And that's what takes the most time. Okay. And then if I write the story and if the story works and if the story's kind of true, then it's easy to do it on my own yeah. at home alone, because if you're doing lines from a play, you know, they go in a certain order and, and I'm not winging it. And then if to learn it live is, is a bit of a work, but, but, you know, I walk around the block several times. I, you know, I have a grocery store right down the street and for years I, I could go in that grocery store unassailed and then, after Groundhog Day, oh my God, you're Ned Ryerson. Can you do Bing for me? So that would happen two, three times a day. Can you do Bing for me? But after I started doing Primary Instinct and was practicing doing my stories live, a woman came up to me at the grocery store and says, I know who you are. 
you're the man who walks around our block talking to himself. <laughs> so it had usurped Groundhog Day. Oh, I see somebody's here. Hi there. This is Alex. This is Hey Alex, good to see you. Great to meet you, Stephen. He looks like he's out at the beach now though. That that looks like the... <laughs> That's what I like to make people think, you know. I'm just a freewheeling guy just hanging out on the beach all the time. That's Let me the just image say, I like S to present. SPF 50. SPF yes. oh, 50 yeah. if you're if with your complexion <laughs> and that shirt, you're going to fry. I'm I'm the the poster boy for Hawaiian Tropic or uh, Banana Boat or any of the other uh, brands. Yeah. What really connected me when in Primary Instinct is when you talk. I mean, I'm Jewish, and when you talked about you know ancient um, ancient Hebrew language and that the that the sacred makes a secular worth doing. I've shared that story or lesson to let people. I do it poorly, but I've shared that like 30, 40 times. Yeah, it it a lot of the way we think is based on the way our language is structured. You know, we can't help it. And uh, what I brought up in Primary Instinct is that we're used to a language that has tenses. And, and we were tortured with that in sixth and seventh grade having to diagram sentences. We have present tense, past, future tense, all, all these things. And so we think of ideas as happening now, as something that happened in the past, something that's going to happen in the future. But Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, didn't really have these tenses. The people who studied Hebrew from Europe and all that and brought Hebrew to Europe and all that afterwards, they applied tenses to it because that's what they were familiar with. So if you were to take Hebrew today, like my wife and I did for about 10 years, it'd drive you crazy, you have so many tenses, you're, you're crazy. But these were tenses that were applied to the language after the language was created. In ancient Hebrew, they, their concept was that which has come to pass, that which will come to pass. So, so the concept of, of past, present, and future was more a circular thing, something that was this flowing thing, not like with strict structures of past, present, future. And the time that really mattered to the ancient Hebrews was the difference between secular time and sacred time. Now, did that, let me ask you a question, of your knowledge of that time frame, did that play out in their culture? Did they collectively take secular, you know, sacred time? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, yes, yes, it, it you know, that's the whole idea of Shabbat. Right. You know, Shabbat is, is a merging of where you take secular time and, and it becomes sacred time. Yeah. Where, where you, you use, pick one day of the week to honor God and honor everything that you've done to honor your wife, to honor your family. You do blessings for your children. You, you do a blessing for the wine. Why do you do a blessing I, over wine? Do you know that? Me? Why do you do a blessing over wine? My, I mean, my understanding is it's taking you into the present. We want you to come here, smell the food, drink the drink. It, like it's it's be it's be waking up and being present to that moment. That's my understanding. That's how because I because for the for the ancient Hebrews, the idea and, and there are a lot of people out there who know a hell of a lot more than I do about this. So if you get any hate mail, blame it on me. <laughs> but the, but the idea of wine is that it is one of the things that is a joining of the work of God and the work of man. Hmm. That's why it gets a special blessing because humans have to cultivate the grapes 
God gives us the grapes. You know, God gives us the grapes. Humans have to cultivate it, and then they have to ferment it and take something of God's and create something of man. So actually, wine represents this intersection between God and man, which is why it moves from the uh, secular to the sacred. Well, and you talked about like how the transcendence from man to God, that that's the prayer. Yes, so that, that's just me. Does that me. play into it or not? That's, that's just me. I'm just saying <laughs> when, whenever we are alone, whenever we are thinking so much in this last couple of years of the pandemic, we've had these unusual moments of despair and unusual moments of panic and things like that. And we, we think in our minds, if only, and if only is that may be a, a function of science too. If you take a, an experiment, go if then, it's the same thing with math. You have an if then formula in your mind in these hours of, of where you feel lost. You go if only your ideation, your thought is the prayer. And, and you, you know, you can have formal prayers and prayer books that are all behind me there. You see a bunch of prayer books behind me. You can have those formal kind of prayers, but I guarantee each one of those prayers came from a moment of desperation. Ever wonder how people make money creating podcasts when they're just starting out? Well, I'll let you in on our little secret. We don't. If you'd like to support the show so we can keep sharing these great conversations with the creators we love or want to sponsor the show with an ad, please reach out to us directly at VentureJournalsArchive at gmail.com. Some of the best ways to support the show are totally free. Post about the podcast, rate and review and subscribe to it, as well as our Instagram at VentureJournalsArchive. Put us in touch with people you think we should interview. Thanks so much just for listening. And now back to the show. Okay, I'm just curious. What? How do you identify as? What's your religion? How do you? Oh, I'm I'm Jewish. I grew Jewish. up. We grew up in Oak Cliff, outside okay. of Dallas, about 25 miles outside of Dallas, and uh, wow. there were only three synagogues at that time in Dallas. Now there are a lot, but there was uh, an Orthodox, a conservative, and Reform. And our family went to the Reform, very <laughs> Reform. And my grandfather, though, was one of the founders of the Orthodox Synagogue in Dallas. Okay. So there's a big branch of my family that's Orthodox. Wow. And then there's a little bit of my family that's conservative. But we Tabalaskis that were out there in Oak Cliff, we were Reform. And so wow. that meant that meant you know it was it was pretty easy for us, easy going. We weren't kosher. We went to Rosh Hashanah services that lasted two hours. Yes. instead of the compulsory 12 <laughs> you know you know uh yeah. probably eight on yom kippur we, we you know we did all sorts of things that were very loosey-goosey but later on in my life i had always promised my mother that i would go to services when i came to los angeles i promised mom i will and my mother had a huge influence on me and so i wanted to go to services and i never did never did and then I did a movie with Larry Miller, great, great Larry Miller, great actor, comedian, just like great him. writer. And we were doing a movie in, what was it, South Carolina, something like that. He goes, Tobo, aren't you, aren't you Hebrew? Aren't you Jewish? He says, well, you ought to come to my synagogue. And Larry told me about this synagogue, and he told me where it was. And I said, I will, Larry. 
And then, like all my promises to my mother, never did. Uh, it was coming to Rosh Hashanah, and I got a huge job. I got a job, the, my first regular role, if not the first, it was the second, a big regular role on a major television show, sitcom. So I had a major, it, it was a big deal. And so we, we had the meeting beforehand and Barry Kemp, who was, who did coach, you know, a great producer. He was saying, guys, I don't know if there's any problem, but we're going to be working on Rosh Hashanah. You know, if the, and, and I go, Richard Kind was in the show and he goes, you know, Barry, you don't, you don't have to worry about us. The only Jews here are me and Tobolowsky, and we're the best kind of Jews. We don't do nothing. So, so anyway, that was, that was. I love Richard Kind. Yeah, so, yeah, he's hilarious. So that night I said, sure, Barry, I'm, I'm here for you. Not, don't worry about it. And then I thought about the promise to my mother and I went to bed that night and I'm tossing and turning and I couldn't sleep. And I'm thinking like, what am I doing? What does my word mean if my word doesn't mean anything to myself, especially if I'm giving my word to my mother? What, what does it mean? And I'm at that stage, I guess in my 40s, something like that, where we tend to want to really take ourselves seriously and say like, was this all a joke? Or does it mean anything? And I woke up just in a sweat, it was daybreak, put on my clothes, and I went in search of Larry Miller's synagogue. And I'm driving through Studio City, I'm going down the streets that he said it was on. He said it was didn't look like anything, he said it looked like this little house, you know, right across from this meat market. So I'm like looking for meat markets, looking for, <laughs> and I found a little house with a Star of David above it. Okay. And I go, I figured that's the one. This old guy comes out with a big old bag and a little floppy hat and leather jacket, and he starts sweeping up leaves in front of in front of the place. So I parked my car and I said, "Excuse me, um, I don't know. Do you work here?" And he goes, "Yes, yes, I work here." I said, "So um, I was looking to have a ticket for uh, Rosh Hashanah. I, I I don't have a ticket, and I wanted to come to service." He says. There are no tickets. Sorry, there are no tickets, nothing available. <laughs> and I said, no, you have to understand. I know Larry Miller. Larry Miller is a friend of mine and we were working on a movie together. And I think he mentioned this synagogue. He says, yes, yes, we know Larry Miller, but there's nothing available. All, all the seats, are, everything's taken, I'll take. And I said, listen, you don't understand. I made a promise to my mother years and years ago that I would come to services and I've never come to services. And now I think I have to come. He says, well, I would love to help you, but there are no tickets. And I said, is, is somebody in charge here? Somebody inside I could talk to? And he says, well, I'm the rabbi here. I'm also in charge of sweeping up leaves, but um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. If you come to Shabbat services tonight, because it's Friday night, if you come to Shabbat services tonight, maybe I could find a seat for you for Rosh Hashanah. Hmm. And I thought, damn it, I've been schnookered. I have been <laughs> schnookered by the rabbi into going to a Shabbat service, which I hadn't been oh, to in like a 
150 years. So anyway, I call up my dear wife, Annie, and I said, baby, uh, after rehearsal today, I am going to go to Shabbat services. And she goes, what? And and I said, I'm going to go to Shabbat services. Uh, the old guy there who was picking up leaves said, if I go to Shabbat services, I maybe could get a ticket. Just just keep dinner warm for me. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll. And she goes, okay, okay. Long-suffering Ann Hearn. Okay. So I go to rehearsal. I tell Barry Kemp, Barry, I am going to be busy for Rosh Hashanah. I, I go, uh, I do the rehearsal. After rehearsal, I drive over to the little synagogue. I go in, there are about 30 people sitting there and the rabbi comes out. Now he's in robes and he's looking rather magnificent. And they start doing the service. And he says, let's all stand up and do this song, this Hebrew song, which I didn't know. And everybody starts singing except for me on the back row. And I pull up the prayer book and I kind of conscientiously kind of turn through the prayer book like I'm attentive, but I'm not participating. And he stops, stop, 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 stop. Without looking at me, he goes, now is not the time to read the prayer book. Now is the time to put the prayer book down and sing with your heart. This is Shabbat night. This is the time that we join with our brothers and sisters and we praise the Lord for the goodness we've had this week and all that we have. So I put it down. He starts singing again, and I know nothing. I know nothing. Standing at the back row, just nothing. He goes, stop, 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 stop. He goes, you know, there may be many people here who it's been a long time for them coming to a synagogue. And maybe they don't know this song. And maybe they don't even know their Hebrew, but you know something? I know Hebrew very well. And I will do the Hebrew for the song, and you just sing la la la, because that's all that's required. And he had me at la la la. I thought, this is the guy for me. And for the next 10 years, and this was a conservative synagogue, Beth Meir, they're much more strict. So the next 10 years, I went to just about every Shabbat service. I went to every service they had, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, everything. And after a Shabbat service, Rabbi Shimmel would uh, teach me a little something. He says, come in here. I want you to, I'm going to read this Hebrew and I want you to follow it with your finger and I want to see how well you could follow it. And then he'd say, I want you to think about this Psalm this week. We'll talk about it next week. And for the next 10 years, I got my instruction from him. Wow. And it was a very unexpected journey, and it kind of led me here. Thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. I want to segue this into talking about your mother, if that's okay. Sure. For you to, okay. The way you speak of her is sacred. The way you, I mean, when you talk about how kind she was, even talking about, like, you know, getting back to, we talked about objects, like the pennies. The pennies. Mom's prayers. Your mother lives in those pennies. Yeah. And that to me, like that's like the, the connection to, between the things we have as part of our life. Like, you know, it's like a photograph is a memory, an object is a memory. And the, and the thing the thing I explained in the movie is that what my mother did is she got older and older, she would make these, she would stop by our 
bookshelf, just kind of like the one behind me now. And she'd hold a penny, sometimes a nickel, dime, quarter, quarter for a big one. And she would like mumble something and put the penny down on the bookcase. And I was asked, what are you doing? And she says, I'm making wishes, my prayers to God. Speaking of your mother, the theme of uh, the movie and uh, it turns out this podcast is definitely the power of storytelling. And I feel like through watching your performance in that movie, like I feel like I know your parents, <laughs> just, you know, you, you like telling those stories. And I feel like nothing illustrates better the power of storytelling than, you know, hearing those stories from you and then feeling like, oh, I kind of know the people that I've never actually met and them sort of living on through those stories is really beautiful. I had a very lucky experience. I've had a lot of lucky experiences. A USA Film Festival in Dallas decided to show The Primary Instinct, and they asked if I would be there, if I could come to Dallas uh, for the festival. I did, and my father, who is now blind and cannot really walk, uh, hard of hearing, still with us, he was able to come to the theater and he came and sat down and he heard all of those stories about us growing up with him and all the stories about mom. And he was laughing so hard at the movie about mom and the Ben Franklin quote. And, and all this, you know, he was just laughing so hard. And, you know, a lot of times older people who can't hear, they speak too loudly, mm -hmm. you know, in public. He would just, that's true. That's very true. That's what happened. That's what happened. And everyone would say, okay, Dad, okay. But I got the opportunity for Dad to see, not see, but hear that movie mm. with an audience and hear everybody laughing and hearing everybody clapping. And, and he, he was a superstar from, from the movie, you know. They just loved that he was there. That's fantastic. One thing you said um, during the movie, that the idea of tr truth always trumps clever. It's funny, this podcast, I don't know if in the, in the original idea it, be, it was going to be a storytelling podcast, but our first, I mean, you're our second guest. Our first guest was Kevin Allison, who, when we talk, told him we were talking to you, he had nothing. He just was like, could you please tell Stephen, I, I'm, you know, say hi. <laughs> right. I think I did his show in San Francisco. Yeah. 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 And I think that, I don't, I don't know if you, like, that ties to performance, but I feel like my understanding of that comes from, like, Del Close and, you know, like, Truth, Truth and Comedy. I don't know if that's if that's your training or that's if it's anywhere related to that world. Oh, I think, you know, when I was a young actor, you know, I always got the laughs no matter what, because I was clever. You know, at a younger age, they don't expect much from actors, you know, but I was deft and I was quick and I was, you know, oh, what's going on? You know, I was I was funny. And, and so I, I was popular in junior high and high school for being like a class clown or something like that. But but as you get older, you realize what really is important is truth. And truth always trumps clever, especially in comedy. If, if you can speak truth, then you could play a part as big as Ned Ryerson. And still, I had a great acting teacher, Ed K. Martin. And Ed K. Martin said, what you do for any part is you ask two questions. What is my greatest hope? And what is my greatest fear? And any other question about your character will come from those two. So it doesn't matter if you're doing Hamlet 
or Ned Ryerson, or if you're doing Californication, you know, Stu Beggs, all these all the characters, every character has a greatest hope and a greatest fear. Hmm. And you put those two together and you will have, weave a web of, of truth. And what makes something funny is something uh, Sigmund Freud talked about in his book, Jokes and the Relation to the Unconscious, one of my favorite books on comedy. And Sigmund Freud says the essence of comedy is making the meaningful meaningless or making the meaningless meaningful. And if you think about Monty Python's library of silly walks, yeah, you know, they're taking something meaningless and making it meaningful and therefore it is funny. Or, or any, any time you have humor, you try to find those two poles and, and you, you could find the humor in the situation. Every role you do, it's important for you to understand the entire story. Okay. And to understand what part you have in that story. What part are you playing? If you go to what Harold Ramis was telling me in Groundhog Day when we were rehearsing, he said, comedy always lives in the two shot. And one character always has to represent the world. And the other character is the aberration to the world. Okay. Meaningful, meaningless, against Sigmund Freud. But, but you have to understand the entire story you're telling. And you have to figure out Am I the world or am I the aberrant position of the world to know okay. what you're doing? So, yes, you have to know in every sitcom, every movie of the week, every movie, every play, you have to analyze the story and go, who am I in this play? And now a quick word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Kevin Allison of The Risk Podcast, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I've been a big fan of the Vintage Annals Archive Instagram for a long time now. I love all the love that goes into the celebration of some of the more obscure and off the beaten path parts of pop culture history and, you know, the amazing artists and bohemians who you know, might not be so much in the spotlight right now, but that we still have so much to be inspired by or, or just to have a good laugh with. And now I'm such a big fan of the Vintage Annals Archive podcast. I'm one of the first guests on it. I gotta say, Rich and Dr. Thunder, their style is so unpredictable and surprising and just doesn't follow all the conventions of your typical like interview podcast. It's much more like conversations with friends that can just go anywhere. Just kind of like my podcast, Risk, you know, in comparison to other storytelling shows, there is a level of raw honesty and intimate vulnerability in the stories shared on Risk. People have shared jaw-dropping stories about cannibalism or kidnapping or the kinkiest sort of kink stories, you know, but also spiritual breakthroughs, beautiful stories about transcending trauma, near-death experiences, and even, you know, just flat out hilarious, you know, the most mortifying things that people have lived through. That's why Risk is such a favorite podcast of therapists and outdoor adventurers and activists and writers because it's a show that is just so filled with life at its most 
So that is why the Risk Podcast and the Vintage Annals Archive Podcast are so simpatico, good friends, <laughs> a lot in common. So seriously, do yourself a favor, subscribe to both podcasts and spread the word. Take a risk. Now back to our conversation. Well, speaking of roles, it's funny that you brought up that story of the rabbi, because after watching the movie, it occurred to me that my earliest experiences hearing storytelling was going to church. I've unfortunately never been to a synagogue. I would think that maybe rabbis do the same thing where they weave stories together to illustrate a certain point. And you were certainly putting across some philosophical points uh, with your right, stories. Right, right. You you know, that's always the easiest way of conveying an, a complicated ideas is through a story. And if, if you were to boil all the stories ever written down, I, I, I keep telling writers when they give me their scripts, that they, there's only one story that matters to us, I think, as viewers, and that's the hero's journey. You could do this, you can do that, you can have the anti-hero, anti you can turn it on its head, but what the story is that we care about is the hero's journey. Because sitting in the theater or in the movie screen or in front of our little computers, we are following one character, that, even if it's a tragedy. You know, watching Denzel Washington and the tragedy of Macbeth. You, you know, the film last year, the, the Shakespeare. You know, we're watching that and we are watching Macbeth and Lady Macbeth being bitten by the bug of ambition. And, and even though Shakespeare has it on a grander scale with amazing poetry and terrifying images, we all know what it's like to go like, you know, this could be our chance. And what are we willing to do to do that? And quite often, as Macbeth finds out in that, he goes too far. And once you go too far, you can't go back sometimes. You don't get a redo. And, and so as someone in the audience, what Shakespeare's teaching us is, beware of ambition. There's nothing to be gained from it because even if you're Thane of Cawdor, you're gonna be murdered like everyone else, but you don't have a redo of everything. Here, here's a, something I brought up to my, to my wife, Anne over the pandemic that I was thinking over the pandemic. I said, how many I'm sorry's do you get in your life? And the, the immediate thing is, oh, well, a lot. But if you're a grown up, and if you're working with someone, if you're married, if, you're, if you have obligations, you're lucky if you get one. You know, if you have a major screw up in your life, you're lucky if you get one apology. And if you're in business with someone and someone cheats you, they don't even get the one apology. That's it. Not only that's it for that project, it's it for every project. So justice is very harsh. And, and you know, right now I'm a grandpapa. And so I'm dealing with a little girl who's two years old. Oh, wow. And she has 500 I'm sorry's in an hour. You know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm wow. sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, as a, we grow up as little children with lots of apologies. But when you get to be an adult, and if you're in a relationship, 
you don't get apologies. And Mm. that's why it's important to be telling the hero's journey. That's why it's important to have some sort of grounding in some of those books behind me of knowing like people who had experienced certain things before. I just, I'm trying to think if I could say this. I've just finished a movie uh, with Chris Pine. Mm. Wonderful Mm. script. Thought it was a wonderful script. And I don't want to give anything away. But yeah, in, in in the story, there something goes very wrong. And in the fabric of the story, in the writing of the story, forgiveness is asked for and forgiveness is granted. And I'm just reading the script and I said, Chris, I don't know if you knew this, but in, and he's very into ancient wisdom. Chris is very deep guy, very into philosophical ideas. In the Talmud, that's these books right behind me there. And over there, there they are over there. There's too many of them. But in the Talmud, there is a prescription for forgiveness. And that is, you have to admit you did something wrong. You have to make restitution for what you did wrong. You have to apologize to the person you wronged. And if you you follow those rules, the person is obliged to forgive you as long as you don't Hmm. have not committed one of three crimes. And the three crimes, maybe you could guess. You want to guess what the crimes are? Murder? That you cannot be forgiven for. Murder. Murder. Why? Because you cannot make restitution. You cannot replace a life. Another one. What's Hmm. another one? uh, Adultery? Yes, because you cannot replace a family. And what is the third one? Stealing, destroying something. Oh, you're so close. Um, Put on your seatbelts. Oh, boy. Gossip. Gossip, yeah. Because you cannot replace a reputation. Wow. Yeah, those are the things you cannot be forgiven for. You cannot make restitution. Have you been on your hero's journey? Have you finished it? Are you heading towards it? What's your place in the hero's journey for you? When I was, hey, I can even show an artifact. Yes. This is my first. That's awesome. Photo and my resume is on the back. Look at that. And a lot of these are like class scenes. You know, this isn't even really a resume. Back then in my head, (laughs) this is just right out of college. I would talk to myself and pretend I was in this show called My Life in the Theater, season one. And and so, you know, here I am at SME in drama class and we have all these drama teachers and drama students and it was, yeah, yeah, this would make a great TV show. Yeah, so even back then, I was casting myself as the lead in a hero's journey thing of the drama class I was doing at SMU. And I had teachers at SMU who hated me and tried to destroy me. I had teachers at SMU who saved me. And you know, it was highly dramatic. And if we go to the third season, or maybe even the fourth season of my life in the theater, I was picked as number one undergraduate student in the theater department. Yeah. So I'm thinking my life in the theater was really happening. And so I was on the hero's journey even then, even though it was a disastrous and bumpy ride. 
in, in college, but it had all the elements of a hero's journey. I fell in love. I had terrible adversaries that I had to use my wits to overcome, and I did. I want to hear about one of the teachers that destroyed you and one of them that saved you, if you're okay sharing that. Yeah, well, the teacher that tried to destroy me, it's in one of my podcasts called Conference Hour, and that was Joan Potter. She was amazing. I was a sophomore, and she was a new teacher uh, doing scene study classes. And my advisor was the head of the department, Bernard Hobgood, and he asked me to do freshman auditions because I'm going, but Hob, I'm a sophomore. He says, yeah, but we have a lot of new members of the faculty. be good if you went in and did an audition. So I went in and I did a speech from maybe Inherit the, you had to do one or two things. And the last thing I did was a speech from, I think, as you like it, these trees will be my books and in their barks, my thoughts all character, that every eye which in this forest looks shall see thy virtue everywhere. Oh, run, run, Orlando, carve on every tree, the fair, the chaste. And I did it as a strip tease. <laughs> so all the teachers are there, all the freshmen are there, and I start taking off my clothes. And at the end, I'm in nothing but uh, boxer shorts. And I turned around and bend over and I'd written high hob, which is the name of the head of the department on my butt. And I like bent over and it said, hi, hop on my butt. Everybody is screaming. People were laughing so hard that they, they had to be carried out. And I go dancing off going like, oh, I gunned this audition. Well, one of the people there, I think did not like it. That was Joan Potter, oh. that I was not serious enough. And so she was determined to destroy me. I didn't know that at the time. So the way SMU was structured if you got what they call an unsatisfactory critique, you were on notice. And if you got two, you were expelled from the department. So that's how they managed wow. everything. So grades meant whatever, you got a letter grade, but if you got an unsatisfactory critique and there were certain things you had to do to warrant an unsatisfactory critique since it was so severe, and one of which was missing strike if you didn't go to strike, and we're all freshmen, so that means it's sophomores. I was a sophomore now. So we're all grunt labor for all the shows. Strike we is get, cleaning up at the end, correct? Yeah, you know, that's cleaning up at the end. That's building the sets. We very rarely did a freshman or sophomore have a big role. So that's the one thing we had to do. So I did a scene in Joan Potter's class, Butterflies Are Free. And one of the plays that year the playwright dropped out, pulled his play back. So we had a spot open for a play to go public and they decided to give it to the acting teachers. Why don't you pick some of the acting scenes and let's open it up to the Dallas public and reviewers to see the work we're doing here. Mm -hmm. And I was so shocked when Joan Potter came to me and said, Stephen, the work you're doing on the butterflies are free scene is so beautiful. It would be an honor if you could do it in in our show and i'm going like and i'm thinking like oh my god she doesn't hate me after all oh this is amazing i i go yes ma'am yes ma'am it'd be an honor and she starts walking away and then she comes you know um one thing there there are a few moments at the beginning that maybe if i just worked with you on uh, a little bit at the opening section maybe we could iron some of that out so why don't we get together wednesday at four o'clock and I said, well, Miss Potter, I have strike Wednesday at four o'clock. I, I can't. 
And then she says, you know what? I'm going to talk to Mr. Van Bimmel. He's head of the strike team. And, you know, I'm a professor. I'm going to see if I could get, get you excused. So Joan Potter came to me the next day and said, Stephen, oh, wonderful news. Mr. Van Bimmel wrote a note, sent it to Hobb. We got you permission to miss strike so we could rehearse. Why don't you meet me at 4 o'clock and the Margot Jones Theater will go. So I went and rehearsed with Joan Potter and did not go to strike. The next day, Bernard Hobgood comes up to me first thing in the morning, drags me into the men's room and says, where were you? I said, what, what do you mean? He says, you weren't at strike. I said, oh, Hop, Hop, no, it's good news. It's good news. Joan Potter picked my scene to be on her show of scenes. Uh, she said I was doing good. And, and she got a note. She got a note from Mr. Van Bimmel and Mr. Van Bimmel sent it to you. And Hop said, there was no note. Mr. Van Bimmel didn't know anything about it. She had engineered the entire thing to get me to misstrike, so it was an automatic unsatisfactory critique. Now, if I had a second unsatisfactory critique, I was expelled from school. I was out on my ass. That's horrible. So I continued to go to classes, and Joan Potter talked to all the teachers not to teach me. I was not to be taught. So I went into class, all the classes, every day, all the time. I prepared scenes. No one let me perform. I took tests. Joan Potter never graded my test. I did essays. She handed the paper back afterwards, un ungraded, unsigned. Nothing. And the weird thing about, and I kept going, I kept going. That was my sophomore year. My junior year, none of the teachers are teaching me but I still show up. Every time I show up and I'm ignored. One of the teachers, Jack Clay, who did period styles class, out of the blue, I, I was so depressed at that time. I thought, well, I'm not gonna work on my damn scene. I'm not gonna work on my monologue, you know, to hell with them. I'm going into period styles class and Jack Clay called on me first. That I was doing a Fagan song from Oliver. I uh, got to pick a pocket or two, yeah, you know, something like that. I started singing and was obvious I had not worked on my piece. And Jack Clay said, stop, stop. You will not shame the work that's done in this class with what you, have you even worked on your piece? I said, no, sir. He said, next class, you will work on two songs. You will work on two monologues and never, never, never come to my class unprepared again. Little did he know I was in tears at the end of that class, not from being yelled at, but of joy because it was the first time a teacher was going to teach me. I got the idea then. Bernard Hobgood, the head of the department, cornered me in a bathroom again and said, you know, uh, there's going to be a problem with Joan Potter. I said, you think so, Hob? And he says, I'm just letting you know she's aiming to get you. I go, Hob, this is something I've known for the last two years. So what I did in my brain is I thought, she's going to try to get me kicked out of school. And so I thought, what if I took my graduate exams now? And I went into my theater history teacher, Tony Graham White, God bless his soul, another hero. 
And I said, Tony, you may know of a problem I'm having with one of the teachers here. Yes. I said, could you please, are there any rules that say I cannot take the graduate exam early? He says, well, no one wants to take the grad. I said, no one wants to. But is there any rule that says I can't take it early? So at the end of my sophomore year, alone in a classroom with Tony Graham White, I took my graduate exam. And I said, Tony, will you do me a favor? I want only you to grade this test. And whether I pass, fail, win, lose, or draw, if you could take this test and just put it in an envelope and keep it for me in case I need it. And he goes, I could do that. Sure enough, we get to senior year. And at this point, Jack Clay is the one teacher who's, he doubled and tripled my assignments I, in a way of making up for previous bad acts. He taught me so much, a real hero. Hobgood came up to me. I'm, I'm trying to get to the nib of the story here. Your time. Your time. Yeah, Hobgood came up to me about six weeks left in school and says, I have terrible news. Joan Potter's given you a second unsatisfactory critique. I said, for what? I show up to her class. I always turn in my papers. They're never graded for uh, having a bad attitude in her class. So now I'm afraid <laughs> you're not going to be able to graduate. And I go, why not? He says, well, you have the hours. You have the grades. But now, because of the two unsatisfactory critiques, you won't be able to take the graduate exam. And I said, Hob, I've taken the graduate exam. He no. says, that's impossible. We give it next week. I said, call Tony Graham White. Call Tony Graham White in theater history. Hob did. Tony Graham White walks down the hallway with a sealed envelope, throws it on Hob's desk, salutes me and walks out. <laughs> and I had made an A on the exam. And so I not only graduated, I graduated first in my class. So there's a villainous teacher, Joan Potter. And then, then, okay, here, here is another object. Okay. These two Ooh. sticks. This is from my first Broadway show. This is from the wake of Jamie Foster. This is uh, signed to me by uh, Ulu Grossbard, who okay. was our director. And uh, he gave everybody these, these sticks. And uh, Joan Potter from Texas came to Broadway to see The Wake of Jamie Foster. She came backstage to my dressing room and said, you're still no good. <laughs> And then I said, yeah, but I think I'm going to have more credits than you had as an actor. So anyway. Thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful. Wow, that's great. Story, and I, I really appreciate you trusting us with that. Does every hero's journey need a villain like that? A lot of times the villain is ourselves in our hero's journey. A lot of times we do a lot to undercut ourselves and hold ourselves back. And we try to, you know, why do we do this? I don't know. I mean, that's why therapists make so much money. But we are all dealing with incomplete information. 
over everything we do. Every look at look at the pandemic. You know, I still remember the very beginning of the pandemic, Mike Pence saying 14 days to flatten the curve. Then I still remember at the beginning of the Biden administration, we have this pandemic licked. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows anything. Mm-hmm. There's incomplete information. We have incomplete information in our lives is the way we're viewed. We have incomplete information, the way casting people look at us as actors, as what we can bring. That's why it's important, again, to to go to those books behind me, judge not, because you never really know the situation. You, you don't have a whole picture. All you have control over is the little bit of information you you know. So in terms of like being an actor, if you're on a movie or a show, make sure your world is in order. Do your homework. Know your lines. Don't be late. Oh, a lot of actors, you know, as you can imagine over the years, they always ask me, can you do little teaching sessions as to what you have to do to be a professional actor? Don't be late. Don't be late. I've seen more people get fired for being late than doing a terrible job acting. It's because when you are late as a professional actor, you are keeping 50, 60, 70 people waiting. And they've already timed everything down to where you don't have enough time to do the job anyway. So don't be late because you'll make enemies. Rich Wexler Photography is proud to sponsor the Vintage Annals Archive podcast. Rich uses photography as a way to connect with all types of diverse communities and to celebrate the rituals within them. He's available for hire for creative portraits and special events. Like his work in curating Vintage Annals Archive, his main influence is the past, so he enjoys shooting on film, Polaroids, and even in 3D. More information can be found at richwexlerphotographer.com or on his Instagram or Facebook of the same name. That's richwexlerphotographer.com. Now back to the show. In terms of the pandemic, are there any like hidden gifts hidden things that happened that were that brought joy or that changed was there anything that in in that tough time that kind of added to your life grand baby grand baby she was a pandemic baby and little dior has been the brightest light for my wife and i and this is the now this is something that drives me crazy when i grew up in oak cliff the one thing we all loved was cars God went, oh, I can't wait to drive, can't wait to drive. And we're reading Road and Track magazine in fourth and fifth grade in library class. Oh, I want to get a 405. Oh, my gosh. Oh, can you believe? All, all we thought about was cars. No one in the entire length of my educational life, which includes uh, four years of college and one year of graduate school, and I got out of there as quickly as I could. But in that period of time, no one ever said how great it is to be a grandparent. And I've been driving ever since I'm 16, and I hate it. I always hate to drive. I hate my car. I hate their cars. I hate cars. And here I have this unbridled joy of having this little granddaughter who's the most perfect and the funniest and the dearest thing in the world. And being a grandparent is wonderful because it's all love and no responsibility. Uh, (laughs) It's like Dior, my son is a chemistry professor. He taught organic chemistry, and now he's teaching all kinds of chemistry. His wife, Dejeuner, she is a pediatrician. She's going to be a head of pediatrics at St. John's Hospital. 
So we got serious brain firepower between those two. And they give us a very strict list of how to behave with their granddaughter, what is permissible, what is not. And one of the things that doesn't end up on that list is anything with sugar on it. <laughs> as a grandparent <laughs> and as a former user of cocaine, I know the importance of sugar. <laughs> and, and you know, we give Dior a little cookie every now and then, or we give her a little something, a li little bit of yogurt. We, we took her for frozen yogurt the other day. We have become fast friends. Y you know, we, we spoil that child and she spoils us by running to us whenever she sees us at preschool when we go to pick her up. And she runs and jumps into our arms and the teacher says, oh, well, I guess it's okay if you take her home, you know. Nothing like a grandchild, <laughs> nothing like it. So if you're thinking of being self-destructive in your life, stick around to be a grandparent because it will all come back to you. Even just as an uncle, that experience is like, may not be your child, but it's just so amazing to have a relationship with a young child, seeing the world in a new way like yes. that. It's, it's yes. amazing. I'm also an uncle and I feel like you get the same grandparent pass. I can just come <laughs> and have fun. You know, you can make fart noises and let the kids do what they do as a kid. You know, that's your role. You're, I feel like there's a certain love and corruption in unclehood. You're going to be there for that, but you're, you're, you're supposed to corrupt them a little bit. <laughs> and you could feel smart because you know the answer to all the questions. That's an elephant. That's a walrus. The, the <laughs> questions are very simple. You know, you don't have to answer any difficult questions for the child. Oh, that, yeah, that is a lemur. Yes. One of the happiest things I've enjoyed is Nix. It, it feels like the Muppet Show because everybody in that show is nice to each other and supportive. What I want to ask is, what was your experience with that world? And also, like, in terms of dress, how did that feel in terms of, like, did you forget your work not in a set? Did it kind of bring you back? No, because back in, in the 80s or even the 70s, I did not wear 30-year-old clothes. And so when I'm doing Minx, they have me in, we want to put you in the exact clothes that they wore back then. And those clothes are 30 years old. So that meant that they couldn't really tailor them because the fabric was so delicate, they would fall okay. apart. So for the only time in my career, they put me in a male girdle <laughs> called a Manx, not Spanx, but a Manx. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the uh, customer said, you know, a lot of men make fun of this, but you, I guarantee, will enjoy the Manx. And if you want one, I could get one for your personal use. I said, forget it. I've been married for 30 years. I don't need a damn Manx. I'm, I'm, she's got to take me as I am. That's just the way it is. Listen, you know, when Anne went, this, when you're married, you don't need a Manx. Anne, <laughs> You know, we have two beautiful children. The second child was cesarean section. But I went, I was in the operating room with Anne, you know, holding her hand, and they put the blue sheet over her head, and I'm standing over the middle, and they slice her open like a watermelon, and they start pulling out her organs uh, and putting the beside, you know, on each side. I'm like going like, okay, okay, that's my baby. That's my baby. And then they reach in and pull out, young Lord William, little Lord William, who now is a doctor at Johns Hopkins. Oh. You know, thank you very much. And so they wow. pull him out 
And Anne is saying like, honey, I feel like they're pushing on my bladder or something, you know. Uh, I feel like I have to pee or something. And I look over the, the curtain. I said, baby, your bladder's not even in your body anymore. It's right over on, beside you. But I have to tell you, it is quite attractive. You know, when you're married, you end up seeing your wife's bladder. And you recognize it as the beautiful thing that it is. You don't need a Manx. You don't need a Manx to prove, you're not proving anything to anyone at a certain point. Is it a vintage Manx or a new Manx? No, it was a new Manx, but I'll show you this. I will show you this. Now, this is something, uh, I have an object. These are the glasses I wore for Manx. Yeah, okay. Now, these are not prop glasses, but they've become prop glasses. As you can see, they're, they have light deflection, so they, they don't like just shine like nothing but lights. These were one of the first glasses mm. I bought when I came out to Los Angeles. So I came out in 76. So I bought these probably in like 78, 79. This is when like Henry Kissinger and yeah. all those people had big, he was telling me that these glasses are in style. You know, the big glasses command the room. So I had these glasses and I wore them back when I was an unemployed actor and going to acting class and all this sort of thing. And then over the years, whenever I had to play some kind of character role that took place in the 70s or 80s, I pulled these out and they would replace the lenses with lenses that were light dissipating and in my proper prescription. So this is one of the few pairs of glasses that I actually can see out of now. Nice. And these are my Manx glasses and these are my, back then being a character, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to be this guy, this guy. I thought I was going to be this guy, but then I started losing my hair and I realized I wasn't going to be this guy. So now I was desperate. I didn't know what to do. So I had to change glasses for every part I played because I thought that's the only, I see I wear these. I could put these on and they're just kind of like professorial. I didn't know yeah. we were going to have a rabbinic talk today, but it fit. <laughs> it fit. If I wore the big glasses, it would have been silly. And here are the original Ned Ryerson glasses. Oh, nice. But oh, you wow. see it has different oh, coating wow. on it. So they look, look, but these are the original glasses I wore for Ned Ryerson. So. Is, are prescription or no? Oh yeah, they're all prescription. Oh, prescription. Nice. So I could see. So now I have like so many different pairs of glasses for each part I wore. Now, Manx, Minx, Minx, not the Manx. I'm gonna call it Manx from now on. To me, it's not Manx. The <laughs> only- Your story made it called, to me, it, I only will call it Manx from now on. Everybody was very delightful on Minx. Yeah. And we had a wonderful time shooting it. I was on the first show of Minx. And then after I did Minx, I did a couple other shows. And then I ended up going back to doing uh, more Goldbergs and yeah. I was busy doing other things. And then I start getting the reviews from Minx coming out. And they were raves, which I was happy about. But the byline was Minx, little colon, a cavalcade of penises. <laughs> and I'm going like, wait, 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 wait a minute. A cavalcade. No, wait a minute. I was in the first show and there was not one penis in that show. Hmm. And not only that, there was no real, you know, there were discussions, about, but I had no idea what the show was going to be a cavalcade of, you know. So 
Annie, you know, she says, oh, you got good reviews. I see on the on the Internet, you got good reviews on Minx and I'm seeing cavalcade of penises. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> oh, my God. If you were one of the rare mean characters in that. You might have been the penis in the first episode. I, I, I could have been. I could have been. <laughs> I certainly was a. Did, did you start rereading your contract to see if there was a yeah. nudity clause in there? Yeah. You know, I did Californication. I, I love you in that one. Now, Calif- that character is, I love you in that yeah, Californication, great. there were peni scenes. You know, there were scenes where, and I remember uh, after the first season I did, I came in, I think I did four, five, six, and seven, season four, five, six, and seven. So I did season four, and then I had some sort of health issue. And I went to the hospital. And they said, you need an immediate open heart surgery. And I'm like, huh? You know, what? This is when you run into the bad times, you know, bad times. And uh, Mm. so I I said, I got to call my wife. They said, oh, we already have. She's here with your cardiologist. So I had been in and out of consciousness on the table getting an angiogram while and they called Annie and says you got to you got to come here so i had one of my arteries was 98% blocked another artery to my heart was 75% blocked and another was 55 so i had a triple bypass and um, oh. yeah and so Glad you're here. After, after oh yeah after i had the surgery you have to nurse yourself to health it t- took well, i'm still not completely healed but it took like about six months, you know, before it stopped hurting, you know, the incision area and all that stuff. And Tom Caponis of Californication called me up at home and said, Stephen, I just want to tell you, we're working on Californication, some scripts, and we want to put you in the first show this season, and it's going to be a nude scene. Are you okay with doing nudity? Now, this was the cavalcade of peni, right? (laughs) So this is this is the beginning of the cavalcade of penises for me. And I said, Tom, I, I don't mind doing that, but I need to tell you something. I'm not the same as I was last season. I had to have open heart surgery. I had it about six weeks ago. I have a big scar kind of running down my chest. I've lost about 20, 25 pounds. Pause on the other end of the line. And then he says, you have a big scar? And I go, yeah, right down the middle of my chest. He goes, fantastic. We love scars on Californication. That's great. So you're okay with being naked with the scar? And I go, sure, Tom. Okay, fine. Now, on Californication, now this is, a, this is a footnote of that story. So coming to my trailer, the guy starts knocking. Now this, I have nothing to show you for. Okay. He says, I am the number one penis guy in Hollywood and he opens up this briefcase and he has all these artificial penis peni all of them out you know from all shapes it's all kinds he says so which one do you think is right for you I of course being a guy I go the biggest one that one there the biggest one he says okay you know you know you get jumbo there and so the whole idea is that in my costume, I would wear that peni, penis in my pants. And if I'm wearing a swimsuit or something, I would wear that under the swimsuit. However, 
There was no room for me and Big John in my swimsuit. No room for both of us. So <laughs> I had to keep going to smaller and smaller and smaller penises, peni. I had you to go were, to smaller. You were a speedo. You were, yeah, a speedo in that shit. I had a speedo, red speedo. That's what I remember, yeah. I ended up not using <laughs> any of them. Instead, they took my athletic socks, rolled it into a roll, and just say, just stuff that down your swimsuit. It won't matter. So that's how Californication, the legend was of Stu Beggs, was created with my uh, sweat sock down my uh, red Speedos. I'm starting to think of titles for this, and I'm, I'm, I'm in between Cavalcade of Peni or, oh. or Stunt Penis. <laughs> I don't know. But I loved Californication. That was great. It's such a great show, California. I, I was going to say, it's every guy's fantasy. Someone pulls out a, a briefcase of penises and lets you choose which one you, you want. want. You want the big one. <laughs> you want the big one. Yeah. That's the one you want, guys. <laughs> if it fits. If the shoe fits, wear it. You know. Dr. Thunder Karaoke is a proud sponsor of the Vintage Annals Archive podcast. Hey, that's me. If you want karaoke at your next birthday party, family reunion, staff party, house party, wedding reception, parole hearing, or any type of event, go to thunderkaraoke.com or at thunderkaraoke on Instagram or Facebook to schedule it now. We do both in-person and virtual events, karaoke or DJing or trivia games, and everything from emceeing kids karaoke to stripping into my cape and tights anywhere you need me. We've got a roster of amazing DJs just waiting to make your party unforgettable, so schedule yours today. Now, back to the show. As we're embarking on this adventure of getting people to tell great stories to us, do you have any advice for us on either finding people to tell great stories or making them feel comfortable enough to elicit great stories from them? I think everybody has great stories as long as they feel comfortable in telling a story about something they regret. There was a quote they had on the internet the other day from To Kill a Mockingbird. The only people that win are those that are not afraid to lose. And so I think that's the center of the hero's journey. I think that's the, you know, if people have to look good in their stories, you know, then you have problems. But if, you know, you just don't regret that. It's funny because I'm, you know, uh, Kevin was the last one. You're this one. You both told stories about taking your clothes off in i was gonna say are, are you thinking of bringing back the strip tease for some i I, I was naked files? in another movie too i you did, did naked in another movie. this with a zoom strip tease steven is that all right with you? i don't <laughs> think so well <laughs> i i used to do that for a living so i can you know bring back that skill so. i did i did this movie called the men's group and in that i play i am totally naked in that and what they had done was the ideas we were shooting over in Westwood and I'm supposed to roll in leaves and stuff and become like this scary man, you know, kind of like this Sasquatch or something almost. And But the costumers, the makeup people made a mistake. So I'm naked in the first couple scenes. Then I run and jump in this compost and, and leaves. Instead of putting like, something to tack the leaves down they tack down the compost with cement with with liquid oh. cement so i had all of this stuff stuck to my skin and it took like about two hours with two girls i'm naked in the shower with two women who are fully dressed 
and they're like working at me like like with turpentine and trying to undo on my skin you know trying to undo everything and and she goes like damn i i cannot believe you know i have to be here taking this off this naked man here i go yeah i can't believe it either (laughs) c-e-m-e-n-t is different if you have to look back at either your storytelling career or your acting career what was your most sacred character sacred experience what is what's that for you what's the one that really like anytime anytime you would ask the question i probably have a different answer asking me today here's another item so I did another broad, the first Broadway show I did, you know, we got bad reviews. Frank Rich killed a second Broadway show. What was, I that, did. What was that show? The bad show was in 83 on Broadway. Okay. But the good show was in 2001, 2002, mornings at seven. Okay. And I had always wanted to meet Julie Haggerty. Okay. And so, in fact, I even did that Tom Green movie, Freddie Got Fingered, just, and I got cut out of that movie, but what? just so I could meet Julie Haggerty. Huh. And it was shooting in Canada often, and Julie was on alternate days. So she was in L.A. when I was in Canada, and vice versa, so I never met her. So anyway, huh. I end up getting an audition for Mornings at 7 in New York, and Lincoln Center is producing it, and they said, this is the deal. If you come out to audition, you know, we'll pay for the plane flight, but if we accept you in the cast, you cannot say no. So don't come out unless you're, you know, they don't want actors in LA that will say, I'll do a Broadway show. And then, oh, but I just got a movie, so I'm not gonna do it, no. So I came out, I got the part. I got the part of Homer in Mornings at Seven, which is the young, not young lover, but 40 year old hapless lover. And my girlfriend in the show was Julie Haggerty. Wow. So I spent a year on Broadway. We were nominated for all sorts of Tony Awards. This is something Buck Henry made for me as a gift. <laughs> it is a, there's me and Julie. <laughs> She's an wow. airplane, right? It was my sweetheart. And Buck Henry, hilarious man, great man. Yes. So we were always the crowd favorite because wow. we were the not so young lovers, Homer and, and Myrtle. There was one show. We were about three weeks before closing. And there's a scene in act two where I have to tell Myrtle, Julie, how much I love her. But we've had this long relationship in the play. We've been boyfriend and girlfriend, and I'm in my 40s, she's in her 40s. You know, we've had this relationship for a long time, but it's never moved beyond that she's my girlfriend. And there is a scene in which I'm trying to apologize to her and tell her that I love her without using the word, I'm sorry, and without ever saying the word, I love you. And it's this most incredibly beautiful scene in Act Two of Mornings at Seven. So I realized the show's gonna end in three weeks. And I looked across at Julie, and I was so filled with love for her that I couldn't talk. And I said, Myrtle, You, and I couldn't say my lines. And Julie, being the professional as she was, she hung in there. She just kept looking at me. She didn't feel the need to improvise a line. And then as I'm silent, trying to come up with the words, because the audience knew what I was about to say. 
I, you know, you, you could hear people starting to cry in the audience. And we were on stage, it felt like seven years, but I think probably by the clock, it was maybe 35 seconds, 40 seconds of absolute silence on a Broadway stage with me trying to get a word out. And Julie and I both on the verge of tears. The audience crying. And I was going, and you know, finally, we got to the end of the scene and came off stage. And I was both embarrassed. I can't believe, you know, I knew we shared a moment with the 2,000 people in the audience. I knew it was a sacred moment. Uh, and afterwards, we had people come up afterwards, Anne Margaret, uh, uh, Andrea Mar Martin, uh, different, different actors came up and, th and they were saying afterwards, what was that? I'd never seen anything like that on a, what would have happened? What was that? She said it, it just, you know, it was like one of the greatest moments of the show and it was all just because I couldn't talk. And that was a pure holy moment. If I were to say today, that was my holy moment, sacred moment. That was a sacred moment. Wow. It was, it's hard for me to, to not think about her as her character in Airplane. Yep. So as much touching as that was, I, I'm, I was still envisioning her as her Airplane character, unfortunately. And, and she still has that daffy touch to it. Yeah. But it's a daffy kind of comedy, but yeah. it's also as sweet as can be. Wow. That was... Uh... <laughs> Was, She's also something. incredible in that uh, great Albert Brooks movie where they run off into the country to find Absolutely. them. Absolutely, the modern life. That sounds right. She's she's fab. She's great actress in anything. She's just great. Do you have any actors, actresses, especially like growing up thinking about being an actor? Do you have any particular actors that really wanted to emulate? Well, I think the actors I. I glommed onto were the early heroes. We we had a TV station, Channel 11 in Dallas, that played old time movies. Mr. Deeds comes to town. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So like Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, were like two of my heroes as actors. I thought, well, I want to yeah. be like them. They they were like my early anything with those two guys in it. I would watch. Recently, having watched the Primer Instinct. What I'm feeling now is is what I felt towards when you go in the second half. I was trying, I was watching that piece, and it's it's really amazing. But I noticed you're in the beginning, and I'm I, I don't I'm hoping this all comes up positive. But you're you're lighter, you're you're plant, you're performing more. But then somewhere like halfway through, there's a there's a kind of a somberness to all of it. Well, there's a structure, you know. There's a structure that I believe a lot in, and as Aristotle talked about it. And that is that all of us, and he said this back in the fifth century, fourth century BC, understand the three act system. Okay. You have introduction, rising action, conclusion, and it's best if something in act three connects with act one. Okay. And so unlike a lot of things from ancient times, when the Romans came in and conquered Greece, and all that, as they tore up the temples, they knocked over the gods, everything. They adopted Aristotle. They thought, well, I like this guy, and they taught Aristotle in their schools. And so the Roman Empire extended from Britain to Africa, all the way, you know, from Portugal, all the, you know, it was there. So now you have Aristotle in Athens is being taught 
long after his death throughout all of Europe, England, all over everybody. And then those people start discovering the world. You have people from Spain and Portugal mm. and, and England, you, you know, making these journeys in the age of expansion come to America. And what do they bring? They bring Aristotle. So Aristotle conquered the damn world. And that's why we're inculcated in our brains with the idea of understanding a story as three acts. And it's really good if you can make act three connect with act one. So I obviously knew yeah. in the primary instinct where I was going to go with the story in act three. With it, my felt, it felt heavier, heavier, but in a good way. It felt more grounded as it got closer to so to, i knew i could start with something light with my mother right, in okay. act one so you set that up you know when you have lightness and then you have cocaine addiction and all sorts of problems certainly you could look at my two books dangerous animals club and my adventures with god simon and schuster and they're on amazon they're everywhere and they're highly amusing i think they're usually pretty funny those the stories in those books and they include the story uh of my teacher, Joan Potter. Uh, it includes the story of me being held hostage at gunpoint in a grocery store. It, it, you know, I have all sorts of stories in both of those books that are they're very enjoyable. Primary Instinct, I think you that's gettable on Amazon as well, that you, you would enjoy that, that's a good sit. And also Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, that's just me telling stories. And uh, the, this new movie, Chris Pine's doing I have high hopes for it. The script was awfully good. It's called Pool Man, and hopefully it'll be out this year, the beginning of next year. We'll see. Nice. All right. You have a lovely night. See you Thank you. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, so you very much. Thank you so much, Stephen. Have a great bet. night. And there you have it. We want to thank Stephen Tobolowski profusely for being so generous with his time and storytelling talents. Be sure to check out all the great shows and movies he's in, his two storytelling documentaries, Primary Instinct and Stephen Tobolowski's Birthday Party, his three books, The Dangerous Animals Club, Cautionary Tales, and My Adventures with God, and his podcast, The Tobolowski Files. You can find links to all these and more at stephentobolowski.com. How do you spell his name? Let's sing it. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. Now you try. Contact us at vintagenalsarchive at gmail.com or at vintagenalsarchive on Instagram. Our website is, you guessed it, vintagenalsarchive.com. Please leave us a voice message with a question, a suggestion of who to interview next, topics we should cover, or just to say hi. Go to anchor.fm slash VAAPod and you might hear yourself on the next episode. That's anchor.fm slash VAAPod. This show was mixed, edited, and recorded by me, Dr. Thunder, who is still faking it till I make it. Alexandra Jones lent me her priceless advice and script editing skills. The Vintage Annals site and Instagram were created and are curated by my co-host Rich Wexler, photographer extraordinaire. Find me, Dr. Thunder, at thunderkaraoke.com or at thunderkaraoke on Facebook or Instagram. If you dare me to use a word or phrase in the show, I probably will. So Alexa, if you're still listening, don't forget to pack your period underwear. Until next week, this is Dr. Thunder. Hey, uh, Steven, did you like how I edited this episode? You have to admit you did something wrong. You have to make restitution for what you did wrong. 
You have to apologize to the person you wronged. Oh, well. See you nerds in the future.